Hey there, it's Allison McGee, your host, coming to you on Monday, November 9th, from my front porch where I'm watching the rain fall on the living and the dead. That's a semi-quote from James Joyce, but here it applies to my dormant garden, all my crazy flowers withered, cut down for the winter, leaves raked on top. It's a few days after all the news outlets called the 2020 election for Joe Biden, days after Election Day itself, days of waiting, of waking and being afraid to check the news and being unable not to. After years of a presidency and administration unlike any I have experienced in my life, after waiting in line to vote early two weeks ago, afraid I would be sick or have COVID on Election Day itself, unwilling to take any chances, of not having my vote counted. (sighs) After walking into that big room with all the voting booths, and for the first time in a lifetime of never missing an election, feeling as if I were about to cry. Everything that can be said about this election, this presidency, these last four years, and what has been wrought in this country has been said, and with great intelligence and articulation, by writers and thinkers I respect. And still, when thinking about the podcast for this week, the thought of letting all that has been wrought and all that has been uncovered and all that we know lies ahead of us pass without saying anything, without marking this moment in history, felt wrong. So here I am. I grew up in Trump country. I am from deep rural, nearly all white, blue collar, conservative, far upstate New York, the opposite of Manhattan. I live in Minneapolis now, a big city, which like most big cities runs liberal. I am the daughter of parents who typically, not anymore, but traditionally, voted for opposite presidential candidates. I don't remember this as being a big deal. It is now, but it wasn't back then. These times feel fraught. Is it possible, I wonder, that sexism and racism are so deeply baked into the fabric and structure of this country that it's literally invisible? to the people who voted for the 45th president four years ago and again last week. I've spent time the past couple of weeks trying to explain the whole situation to international friends who write to me, who watch this country's struggles with fear and confoundment. Why, they say. Why? Well, we're baked in sexism, I say. We're baked in racism. That's not all, though. I also think that people who are not American don't understand how painful and difficult much of life here is. That phrase that I hear literally multiple times a day about the U.S. being the richest country in the world translates into Almost all the money is hoarded in the hands of fewer than 10 people. 10. The American dream, that other phrase, 
equals no safety nets, no guaranteed family leave, no subsidized child care, no subsidized higher education, nothing beyond social security and then only if you've worked your entire life. No guaranteed health insurance, which means that your entire life savings can be wiped out with a single major surgery. No guaranteed vacation time. Sure, work three jobs at minimum wage, which is currently $7.25 an hour, and don't even think you'll be able to pay your rent. Toss in the facts that the elect toss in the facts that the electoral college, which is our antiquated and outdated system of voting, means it's not a one-person, one-vote system. And how about a Supreme Court which has far more power than the Supreme Courts in other countries do? And life here is really hard. The American dream? I've always looked askance at that term, and I'm the descendant of immigrants, some of whom did all right, and some of whom did not. Add these factors together, and maybe it's easier to see why some people living in tough circumstances are willing to believe a con man who promises them their lives will be better under him, and despite possible misgivings, vote for him. And I can't stop thinking about the rise of news media that spreads conspiracy theories and lies with nothing to stop them. When Reagan's FCC abolished the Fairness Doctrine, which had required media to present both sides' opinions if they weren't just reporting straight news and had been in place since 1949, it was open season for late-night hosts and the rise of Fox News. It is impossible to overstate the fundamental importance of biased and outright false reporting to change the way viewers think about politics. So here in the waning days of the reign of the 45th president, we have a geographically vast country with people who may not even recognize dog whistles. Things like urban and them and those people for what they actually are. We've got straight-up pleas to white supremacy. Stand back and stand by, along with hideous statements like grab them by the pussy, referring to half the population. There are some who find glee in someone with no filter, who isn't even trying to be polite or play by the rules. This last one, to me, is the playground bully effect that I've witnessed since birth. It's why I so distrust any crowd mentality. But here's a story for you. A month ago, I sold an old car to buyers whose Facebook pages I investigated prior to meeting them, where I found out that they are the exact opposite of me politically. I was nervous and afraid and downhearted to meet them. But they emerged from their car wearing masks that they never took off. They live in a tiny town in South Dakota where they took care of their parents until they died. They volunteer their time to nonverbal autistic children and they always wear masks. So, quote, we can protect others. The three of us talked for more than an hour. We discussed how hard the pandemic is and how we all see both sides of the issue so clearly that it's fundamentally important to keep people healthy 
and also how debilitating it is to live such confined lives. Before driving off after that initial visit to check out the car, they told me that they hope that once this election is finally over, maybe we can all start to get better. And when they returned a week later to pick up the car, they brought bags filled with food and coupons and socks. And they told me that, you know, we noticed quite a few homeless people when we were here in the city last week, and we thought they might be able to use these. So that's one story of people who voted the exact opposite of me. Here's another story. My family, immediate and extended, is multiracial with immigrant, straight, gay, and trans members. It's been hard to sleep for the last four years, hard to function. My dreams these past four years have often been nightmares where my child, my family members, are rounded up and taken from me, taken somewhere I can't protect them. For four straight years, I have tried to keep a smooth and steady exterior while taking one small action every day to protect what is dear to me, to work toward a future I want to see happen. When the election was called, I texted the results to my child off on a solo hiking trip up north to try to escape the tension for an afternoon. That night, my child walked in the door with the kind of smile I realized in that moment I had not seen in so, so long. We both were feeling something we hadn't felt in years, an unfamiliar feeling, relief mixed with hope. I hold these two stories in my head. Are we really each other's enemies? Is the real enemy a leader who doesn't know or care about the people he says he does? Is the real enemy hatred promulgated by people who seem to relish it? Is there a way to come together? What is the answer here? What even are the questions? I don't know. All I do know is that with the exception of the straight-up Hitler types who march around with assault weapons threatening the lives of everyone not like them, I cannot, much as I may despise someone's politics and who they voted for, decree them to be all bad and cut them out of my life. That would mean giving up on them. It would mean giving up on myself and my hope of a better, more inclusive world. And in my small experience, the only way to make things better is to listen. Listen not to the outer, loud, shouting story coming from the people that feel like enemies, but to the inner one, the silent story that tells you where a person is coming from, where and why they are hurting, and then talk. Which brings me finally to a poem by W. H. Auden. Here is the poem. It is from September 1st, 
1939, by W. H. Auden. All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. Well, friends, that is it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. If you liked it, please spread the word by sending the link to someone else who might like it. And give us a good rating if you are so inclined, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Original theme music for our show is by Dylan Parisi. Additional music composed and performed by Kelly Krebs. Today's poem, from September 1st, 1939, by W.H. Auden, is in the public domain. Words by Winter is created and hosted by me, writer Allison McGee. Tell me what you're going through so that I can go in search of a poem to help you through, to help us all through, the way that poems have been helping me through since I was a little girl. Sometimes life feels too hard and too intense to bear alone. And if that's where you are right now, reach out. You can send a voice memo to wordsbywinterpodcast at gmail.com or drop me a line at the same address, which again is wordsbywinterpodcast at gmail.com. For more information, go to my website, alisonmcgee.com. Words by Winter, conversations, reflections, and poems about the passages of life because it is rough out there and we have to help each other through.